Forgotten Classics, where a good story never goes out of style. Hello everyone, I'm Julie, and here we have episode 300 of Forgotten Classics. Episode 300. Um, (laughs) I did not do anything special, but it did occur to me last time that I was hitting one of those markers. 300's a big number. I started this, I had to go look, in June, at the beginning of June in 2007. So that's nine years of podcasting. That's not bad, I would say. And I feel like we still have some good stuff ahead of us. So I hope you've been enjoying it. If you um, cannot get to many of the episodes on iTunes, I know there's some setting I should be able to change, but I cannot find it. Definitely go by the website at hcforgottenclassics.blogspot.com. And if you look at the library, there is a download link for everything. You can just right-click and download. It's a bit of a pain. It's not automatic, but it's not that bad either. So you can take a look at all the things there. I want to thank everybody who has come by during the last nine years, and especially the ones who I know who have been coming the whole time That's real dedication, people, and I appreciate it. And sticking with me through all the different types of stories. I mean, cookbooks and children's stories and ghost stories and the people in the mist adventure type stories, all kinds of stuff. And we have some good things coming up, so we're not done yet. Let's see about getting to 400. So now... For the podcast highlight, I don't really have a podcast, but what I have is something I don't think I've mentioned, and it's a series that a lot of people have heard of. It's the Master and Commander series by Patrick O'Brien, and that's O-apostrophe-B-R-I-A-N. I always wanted to spell it with an E for some reason. And the first book, I believe, is called Master and Commander. It's evidently it goes to like 20 books. I'm on book four. Now, I read the first three a while ago, maybe last year, and I don't remember why I tried the first one, but I did have the wonderful experience of listening to Patrick Tull, T-U-L-L, at Audible read that first book, and I was hooked on his voice. And this is kind of funny because there are two different readers who have read the whole series, I believe. At Audible, and you can get either set, and you will see people in the comments or reviews for the different readings of the series just striking out at the other narrator. So you've got Simon Vance, or you have Patrick Tull. I like Simon Vance reading things. He is a wonderful narrator, but I don't know. Patrick Tull is just so much better. It's like your old grandfather sitting down with his pipe in his hand to tell you a great story. And somehow he just hooks me. So, you know, if you don't agree, I'm totally fine with that. I get it. But I just love his readings. Now, the books themselves, most people have heard of them at least, and they're one of these things where you're following the career of Jack Aubrey from the time he's becoming, I don't know, it's been a while since I read the first book, a commander, a master of the ship, I don't know, one of those things. 
And you follow him as he goes through these various adventures. It's during the Napoleonic Wars era. He's on the British side. And you're shown a lot of this through the eyes of a friend he makes in the first book, Stephen Maturin, who is Irish and also Catalonian on his grandmother's side. And he is a doctor and he is something else. But if you haven't read the book, I'm not going to say it. I'll let you discover that yourself. But because he's completely a landlubber, and he and Jack bond over music, he gets a lot of things explained to him. And you also get a different point of view from him. And as far as I can tell, these books are very faithful to the way people would have thought back in those days. Now, Stephen Matterin is a bit of a rebel anyway. Well, you know, he's Irish, right? So the Irish, that's kind of the proud, rebellious spirit. But he also is very proud of being very scientific, very practical. He's a naturalist. He just cannot have any more fun than being dropped off on an island that he's never been to for a day and looking for bugs and frogs and birds and all these things and making notes of them. So he just has a completely different mindset. Now, not only are the naval adventures and the friendship fun, but of course you get to see how everybody's careers develop, the romances they have, and the way the war is going. And what surprises me most of all is the kinds of, how do I say it? The kinds of logic and thinking that went into sailing these ships. Now, Patrick O'Brien had a real model in a little-known naval figure, and that's who he's based the adventures and the stories on. I mean, the characters are really his own, but there was a real guy who was kind of like Jack Aubrey. And as in this fourth book that I'm reading, The Mauritius Command, which is in um, India... He's at pains to point out that these naval actions really happened, that the way everybody engaged with each other and the way the battles came off really happened. He has just inserted Jack and his ship or put them into where some of the adventures would have happened. That also is a great way to learn history, right? Historical fiction. What got me into reading this fourth book, since I'd read the other three a while ago and then gone that's enough. I don't need any more of this. I'm happy. I know how everybody's romances have turned out. And I'm moving on was that I rewatched Master and Commander, The Far Side of the World, the movie starring Russell Crowe and Paul Bettany, who I love in practically anything he's in. (sighs) But fandom aside, (laughs) It was a movie that I saw at the theaters when it came out, and I liked it pretty well. I didn't, you know, feel like I'd ever need to watch it again, and I picked it up to watch to see if it would be good for one of these movie discussion groups I run. And I don't know if it would be necessarily good for those because they tend to be a lot of older ladies, but I loved it so much, and not only because of the realism and the way the story was told, and oh my gosh, the cinematography was wonderful, and the pacing, I just really enjoyed the movie. I might be a different movie viewer than I was in 2003, for one thing. But the other thing is that having read those first three books, I was able to admire 
the artistry with which the director who co-wrote the screenplay brought together so many things about these two characters and about the ship and about their adventures and the way that the Navy works and these naval uh, battles that I was just in awe of how well all those things were communicated. Because I think they took pieces from several different books, but it was just really well done. So that made me instantly want to listen to the fourth book. And luckily, I happened to have a new Audible credit burning a hole in my pocket. So I ran right out and got it. So I highly recommend those audiobooks. I highly recommend the movie. And uh, ships ahoy. Now, back to our own story with ships, which is Talons Incorporated by Murray Leinster. Read for us by Mark Nelson from LibriVox. When last <laughs> we saw young Captain Bors, he was having to deal with the problems of having won a battle when you're getting ready to be invaded. And so what King Humphrey was worried about was now that they had destroyed that particular fleet of the Meekin, the aggressors, they were going to get stomped on hard when they were invaded. What I really loved was Captain Boar's plan to get out of it by having a way to get intelligence by being a pirate, essentially. Showing up, seeing what he could find out. Did any of the Meekin ships d- get away? Did none of them get away? What did the Meekin think happened? And also stealing food. So this seems like a brilliant plan, and it also seems very much like when the British would send buccaneers up against the Spanish. They gave them papers and said, you're on our side. It's okay. We're not going to do anything to you. Just only attack the Spanish. Mess them up. Take their stuff. We're fine with it. I also really loved King Humphrey knowing himself well enough to tell Captain Boers, I suppose you have a plan for everything. And Boers says, yes. And he goes, good. Do not tell me. I'm sure I won't like it. I have enough to do, and I don't want to get in your way, and I will if I know what your plan is. And we all breathed a sigh of relief, right? Because the one thing we know about King Humphrey is he's kind of like an insurance salesman. All he wants to do is work the averages for what's going to keep everyone safe. And when you're fighting a big battle or when you're trying to deal with keeping invaders away, you cannot deal with what's going to be safe. You have to take some risks. So there we are. So now we've seen that Boars can make a pretty good pirate when he tries, which I enjoyed a lot. And he's found out that most of these other planets he's visited are not very happy with the Meekin. They'd be happy to throw them off when gets the feeling. So what's he going to do with that? He's making plans. Let's dive in and find out what they are. Chapter 7 of Talents Incorporated by Murray Leinster the Mekinese ship was a cruiser, and it broke out of overdrive within the Tralee solar system just two days, four hours, and some odd minutes after Gwenlin predicted its coming. Presumably, it had made the customary earlier breakout to correct its course and measure the distance remaining to be run. 
In overdrive there was not as yet a way to know accurately one's actual speed, and at astronomical distances small errors piled up. Correction of line was important, too, because a course that was even a second off arc could mount up to hundreds of thousands of miles. But even with that usual previous breakout, the Mekinese cruiser did not turn up conveniently close to its destination. It needed a long solar system drive to make its planet fall. Bors's long-range radar picked it up before it was near enough to notify its arrival to the planet, if it intended to notify at all. Most likely, its program was simply and frighteningly to appear overhead and arrogantly demand the services of the landing grid to lower it to the ground. Bors's radar detected the cruiser and instantly cut itself off. The cry of, CONTACT, went through the ship and all inner doors closed, sealing the ship into sections. Bors was already at the board in the control room. He did not accept the predictions of Talents Incorporated as absolute truth. It bothered him that such irrational means of securing information should be so accurate. So he compromised in his own mind to the point where, when Talents Incorporated gave specific information, it was possible, no more. Then, having admitted so much, he acted on the mere possibility and pretended to be surprised when it turned out to be a fact. That was the case now. A ship had appeared in this solar system at the time the ship arrival talent on the Silva predicted. Bohr scowled and swung the Isis in line between Trey Lee and the new arrival. He turned then and drove steadily out toward it. The other ship's screens would show a large blip which was the planet, and in direct line a very much smaller blip which was the Isis. The small blip might not be noticed because it was in line with the larger. If it were noticed, it would be confusing, because such things should not happen. But the cruisers of Meekin were not apt to be easily alarmed. They represented a great empire, all of whose landing grids were safely controlled, and though there was disaffection everywhere, there was no reason to suspect rebellion at operations in space. For a long time nothing happened. The Isis drove to meet the cruiser. The two vessels should be approaching each other at a rate which was the total of their speeds. Bors punched computer keys and got the gravitational factor at this distance from Tralee's sun. He set the Isis's solar system drive to that exact quantity. He waited. His own radar was now non-operative. Its first discovery pulse would have been observed by the Mekinese duty officer. The fact that it did not repeat would be abnormal. The duty officer would wonder why it didn't come again. The astrogation radar cut off. Then a single strong pulse came. It would be a ranging pulse. Cargo ship radars sacrificed high accuracy for wide and deep coverage. But war vessels carried pulse instruments which could measure distances within feet up to thousands of miles, and by phase scrambling among the echoes even get some information about the size and shape of the object examined. Not much, but some. Bors relaxed. Things were going well. When four other range pulses arrived at second intervals, he nodded to himself. This was a warship's reaction. It could be nothing else. That officer knew that something was coming out from Tre Lee. 
it was on approximately a collision course. But a ship traveling under power should gain velocity as long as its drive was on. When traveling outward from the sun and not under power, it should lose velocity by so many feet per second to the sun's gravitational pull. Borza's ship did neither. It displayed the remarkably unlikely characteristic of absolutely steady motion. It was not normal. It was not possible. It could not have any reasonable explanation in the mind of a Mekinese. Which was its purpose? It would arouse professional curiosity on the cruiser, which would then waste some precious time attempting to identify it. There wouldn't be suspicion because it didn't act suspiciously. Still, it couldn't be dismissed, because it didn't behave in any recognizable fashion. The cruiser would want to know more about it. It shouldn't move at a steady velocity going outward from a sun. In consequence, Bors got in the first shot. He said, Fire one, when the Mekinese would be just about planning to turn their electron telescope upon it. A missile leaped away from the Isis. It went off at an angle, and it curved madly, and the instrumentation of the cruiser could spot it as now there, now here, now nearer, and now nearer still. But the computers could not handle an object which not only changed velocity, but changed the rate at which its velocity changed. Missiles came pouring out of the Mekinese ship. They were infinitesimal bright specks on the radar screen. They curved violently in flight, trying to intercept the Isis's missile. They failed. There was a flash of sun-bright flame very, very far away. There was a little cloud of vapor which dissipated swiftly. Then there was nothing but two or three specks moving at random, their target lost, their purpose forgotten. The fact of victory was an anticlimax. "'All clear,' said Bors grimly. The inner compartment doors opened. The normal sounds of the ship were heard again. Bors began to calculate the data needed for the journey to Garin. There was the angle and the distance and the proper motions and the time elapsed. He found it difficult to think in such terms. He was discontented. He'd ambushed a Mekinese cruiser. True, he'd let his own ship be seen, and the Mekinese had warning enough to launch missiles in their own defense. It was not even faintly like the ambush of a cruiser on the bottom of a Kandarian sea, waiting to assassinate a fleet when its complement went on board. But Bors didn't like what he'd just done. The figures wouldn't come out right. Impatiently, he sent for Logan. The mathematical talent came into the control room. "'Will you calculate this for me?' Bors asked irritably. Logan glanced casually at the figures and wrote down the answer instantly, without thought or reflection. Instantly. Bors couldn't quite believe it. The distance between the two stars was a rounded-off number, of course. The relative proper motion of the two stars had a large plus-or-minus bugger factor. The time-lapse due to distance had a presumed correction, and there was a considerable probable error in the speed of translation of the ship during overdrive. It was a moderately complicated equation, and the computation of the probable error was especially tricky. Bohr stared at it, and then stared at Logan. "'That's the answer to what you have written there,' 
said Logan condescendingly, but your figures are off. I've been talking to your computer men. They've given me the log figures on past overdrive jumps and the observed errors on arrival. They're systematic. I noticed it at once. Bohr said, What? There's a source of consistent error, Logan said patiently. I found the values to correct it, then I found the source. It's in your overdrive speed. Bohr's blinked. Speed in overdrive could not be computed exactly. The approximation was very close, within a fraction of a tenth of one percent, but when the distance traveled was light-years, the uncertainty piled up. "'If you use these figures,' said Logan complacently, and he scribbled figures swiftly, "'you'll get it really accurate.' Having finished writing the equation, he wrote the solution. Bors asked suspicious questions. Logan answered absently. He knew nothing about overdrive. He didn't understand anything but numbers, and he didn't know how he did and what he did with them. But he'd worked backward from observed errors in calculation and found a way to keep them out of the answer. And he'd done it all in his head. It was unbelievable, yet Bors believed. I'll try your figures, he said. Thanks. Logan went proudly away, past an orderly bringing cups of coffee to the control room. Bors aimed the ship according to the calculation Logan had given him, scrupulously setting the breakout timer to the exact figure listed. He was still uncomfortable about the destruction of the Mekinese cruiser when he said curtly, Overdrive coming! He'd have preferred a more sportsmanlike type of warfare. He faced the old, deplorable fact that fighting men had had to adjust to throughout the ages. One can fight an honorable enemy honorably, but against some men scruples count as handicaps. "'Swine!' growled Bors. "'They'll make us like them!' Then into the microphone he said, Five, four, three, two. One. He pressed the overdrive button. The sensation of going into overdrive was acutely uncomfortable, as always. Bohr swallowed squeamishly and took his cup of coffee. The Isis then lay wrapped in a cocoon of stressed space. Its properties included the fact that its particular type of stress could travel much more swiftly than the stresses involved in the propagation of radiation, of magnetism, or gravity. And this state of stress, this overdrive field, did not have a position. It was a position. The ship inside it could not be said to be in the real cosmos at all, but when the field collapsed, it would be somewhere, and the way it pointed, and how long before collapse, determined in what particular somewhere it would be when it came out. But travel in overdrive was tedious. As civilization increases man's control of the cosmos, it takes the fun out of it. In prehistoric days, a man who had to hunt animals or go hungry may often have gone hungry, but he was never bored by the sameness of his meals. A man who traveled on horseback often got to his destination late, but he was not troubled with ennui on the way. In overdrive, Bors's ship traveled almost with the speed of thought,
but there was absolutely nothing to think about while journeying. Not about the journey, anyhow. While the ship drove on, however, the cargo ship seized on Tralee made its way toward Glamis and a meeting with the fleet, then gloomily sweeping in orbit around Glamis too. The food it carried would raise men's spirits a little, but it would not solve the problem of what the fleet was to do. Morgan, on the flagship, expounded the ability of his talents to perform the incredible, but nobody could find any application of the incredible to the fix the fleet was in. On Kandar, the population knew that there had been a battle off the gas giant planet, but they did not know the result. The Mekanese fleet had not come. The fleet of Kandar had not returned. The caretaker government met in council and desperately made guesses. It arrived at no hopeful conclusion whatever. The most probable, because most hopeless, conviction seemed to be that the fleet of Meekin had met and fought, and that it was victorious, and in retaliation for resistance it had gone away to send back swarms of grisly bomb-carriers, which would drop atomic bombs in such quantity that for a thousand years to come there would be no life on Kandar. The light cruiser, the Isis, was unaware of these frustrations. It remained in overdrive, where absolutely nothing happened. Bors reviewed his actions and could not but approve of them tepidly. He'd sent food to the fleet, he destroyed two enemy fighting ships, and he'd done what he could do to harm the Mekanese puppets on Tralee. He'd had them publicly humiliated with well-chosen epithets. He destroyed the records and archives of the secret political police. Many people on Tralee already blessed him without knowing who he was. There might yet be hope of better days. But all things end even journeys at excessively great multiples of the speed of light. The overdrive timer rang warning bells. Taped breakout notifications sounded from speakers throughout the ship. There was a countdown of seconds, and the abominably unpleasant sensation of breakout, and the ship was in normal space again. There was the sun of Garin, burning peacefully in a vast void, with millions of minute, unwinking lights in the firmament all about it. There was a gas-giant planet, a mere fifteen million miles away. Further out there were the smaller, frozen worlds. Nearer the sun, on the far side of its orbit, there was the planet Garin. The Isis drove for that planet, while Bors tried to decide whether the remarkable accuracy of this breakout was due to accident or to Logan's computations. Logan appeared as Bors was gloomily contemplating the days needed to reach Garin on solar system drive, because overdrive was too fast. Logan looked offhand and elaborately casual, but he fairly glowed with triumph. "'I found out the fact behind the bugger factor, Captain,' he said condescendingly. "'The speed of a ship in overdrive varies as the change in mass to the minus fourth. Your computers couldn't tell that. Here's a table for calculating the speed of a ship in overdrive according to its mass and the strength of the overdrive field. Fine, said Bors, without enthusiasm. And to go with it, said Logan, his voice indifferent, but his eyes shining proudly, 
Just for my own amusement, I computed a complete table of overdrive speeds for this particular ship, with different strengths of field. They run from 1.5 light speeds up to the maximum your equipment will give. You have to correct for changes of mass, of course." Bors was not quite capable of enthusiasm over the computation of tables of complex figures. He simply could not share Logan's thrill of achievement in the results of the neat rows of numerals. Nor had he struggled unduly to grasp the implication of Logan's explanation. Instead, he said politely, "'Very nice. Thank you very much.' Logan's eyes ceased to shine. His wounded pride made him defiant. "'Nobody else anywhere could have worked out that table!' he said stridently. "'Nobody! Morgan said you'd appreciate my work. He said you needed my talent. But what good do you see in it? You think I'm a freak!' Bors realized that he'd been tactless. Logan's experiences before Talents Incorporated had made him unduly sensitive. He'd done something of which he was proud, but Bors didn't appreciate its magnitude. Logan reacted to the frustration of his vanity. "'Hold it,' said Bors. "'I'm not unappreciative. I'm stupid and worried about something. You just figured an overdrive jump for me that's the most accurate I ever heard of. But I'm desperate for time, and we've got to spend two days in solar system drive because we can't make an overdrive hop of less than light days.' so we're losing forty-eight hours or more." Logan said, as stridently as before, "'But I just showed you you don't have to. Cut the field strength according to that table!' Bors was jolted. It was suddenly self-evident. Logan had said he'd figured a table of overdrive fields for the Isis, which would work for anything between 1.5 light speeds to maximum. 1.5 light-speeds. It was one of those absurdities in technology that so often go so long before they are noticed. During the development of overdrive, it had been the effort of every technician to get the fastest possible drive. It was known that with a given mass and a given field strength, one could get an effective speed of an unbelievable figure. Men had spent their lives trying to increase that figure but nobody'd ever tried to figure out how slowly one could travel in overdrive, because solar system drive took care of short distances. "'Wait a minute,' said Bohr, staring. "'Do you really mean I can drive this ship under two light speeds in overdrive?' "'Look at the table,' said Logan, trembling with anger. "'Look at it!' You'll find the figures right there!" Bors looked. Then he stood up quickly. He left the ship in the care of his second-in-command and plunged into a highly technical discussion with its engineers. He ran into violent objections. The whole purpose of overdrive was high speed between stars. The engineers insisted that one had to use the strongest possible field. If the field were made feeble, it would become unstable. Everybody knew that the field had to be of maximum strength. "'We'll try minimum,' said Bors coldly. 
Now, let's get to work. He had to do much of the labor himself, because the engineers found it necessary to stop at each stage of the effort to explain why it should not be done. He had almost to battle to get an auxiliary circuit paralleling the main overdrive unit with a transformer to bring down voltage, and a complete new power supply unit to be cut into the overdrive line while leaving the standard ready for use without delay. He went back to the control room. He took a distance reading on the huge planet off to port. He threw on the new, low-power overdrive field. He held it for seconds and broke out. It was still in sight. The speed of the Isis with the adjusted overdrive was 1.7 lights. Now, instead of spending days in solar system drive for planetary approach, Bors went into the new speed drive and broke out in 11 minutes 20 seconds, and was within a hundred thousand miles of Garin. He'd saved two days and secured the promise of many more such valuable feats. As soon as the Isis broke into normal space near Garin, there was a call on the communicator. A familiar voice. Calling Isis! Calling Isis! Silva, calling Isis! Bors said softly, Damnation! For the second time, what are you doing in this place? Gwenlin's voice laughed. Traveling for pleasure, Captain Bors. I've news for you. We were allowed to land and then told to leave again. There's a warship down below. I told you about it before. It's still there. There's a huge cargo ship, too. And there are riots, because it's almost finished loading with requisitioned foodstuffs for Meekin. Meekin is, would you believe it, unpopular on Garin. Very well, said Bors. I'll see what can be done. Will you carry a message for me? Happy to oblige, Captain. Tell them that... Then Bors stopped short. It was not probable that the fleet waveform and frequency were known to Meekinese ships but the possibility of low-speed overdrive travel was much too important a military secret to risk under any circumstances. He said, I'll be along very shortly, with some highly encouraging news. Who do I tell this to? I name no names on microwaves, he told her. Get going, will you? To hear, said Gwenlin cheerfully, is to obey. Her communicator clicked off. The Silva showed on a radar screen, but had not been near enough to be sighted direct. The blip shot out from the planet. Bors growled to himself. The Isis floated a hundred thousand miles off Garin. There was no challenge. There was no query from the planet. But Gwenlin said that there were riots down below. They could be serious enough to absorb the attention usually given to routine. But there was another reason for this inattention. Garin was a part of the Meekinese Empire, which was not encouraged to trade off-planet, except through Meekin. Very few non-Meekinese ships would ever land there, and therefore wouldn't be watched for. It was unlikely that a long-range radar habitually swept space off-Garin. The battleship should be more alert. But again, there was no danger of space-borne rebellion, 
and the affair of Kandar might not have been brooded so far away. But the spaceport would respond to calls, certainly. Bors considered these circumstances. A large cargo ship loaded with foodstuffs requisitioned to be sent to Meekin. A population which had been rebellious before, witnessed the battleship aground to overall resistance, and now was rioting. Bors called for the extra members of his crew. He uncomfortably outlined the action he had in mind. There was one part that he disliked. He had to stay on board ship. The important action, as he saw it, would take place elsewhere. It was so obviously painful for him to outline a course of action in which other men must take risks he couldn't share that his men regarded him with pleased affection which he did not guess at. In the end he asked for twenty volunteers, and got fifty. He swung the Isis around to the night side of the planet. Its two port-blisters opened and two boats floated free in the orbit Bors had established. The ship moved on ahead. Just at sunup, where the spaceport stood, a voice growled down from outer space. "'Calling ground!' it said contemptuously. "'Calling ground! This is the last ship left of the fleet of Kandar. We're pirates now, and we're looking for trouble. There's a battleship down there. Come up and fight, or we blast you in your spaceport. Just to prove we can do it, Watch! Bohr said, Fire one, and a missile went off toward the planet. It was fused to detonate at the very tip of the fringes of the planet's atmosphere. It did. There was light more brilliant than a thousand suns. The long, low shadows of sunrise vanished. The new rising sun turned dim by comparison. The voice from space spoke with intolerable levity. Come up with your missiles ready. We'll give you ten thousand miles of height, and if you try to duck out in overdrive. The voice was explicit about what it would do to the Mekinese occupied areas of Garin if the battleship fled. It came up to fight. It could do nothing else. Talents Incorporated. Chapter 8 The trick, of course, was in the timing and the secret was that Bors knew what he was doing, while those who opposed him did not. Bors had declared himself a pirate on Tralee, and here off Garin he'd claimed the same status. But no Mekinese as yet knew why he'd outlawed himself, nor his purpose in challenging a line battleship to fight. It seemed like raving, hysterical hatred of men with no motive but hate. But it wasn't. The Isis could have sent down a missile with a limited-yield warhead if its only purpose had been to kill or to destroy. He could have blasted the warship without warning, and it was unlikely that it was alert enough to send up counter-missiles in its own defense. But he'd have had to smash everything else in the spaceport at the same time. Therefore he left his two spaceboats in low orbit on the night side of the planet. In thirty minutes or so, they'd arrived near the spaceport, where there was a large cargo ship loaded with foodstuffs for Meekin. Bors wanted that cargo. 
So, when the Mekinese battle-wagon came lumbering up to space, with her missile-tubes armed and bristling, Bors withdrew the Isis. It was not flight. It was a move designed to make sure that, when the fight began, there would be no stray missiles falling on the planet. Unseen, the Isis's space-boats floated in darkness. They carried ten men each, equipped with small arms and light bombs. They listened to such bits of broadcast information as came from the night beneath them. Boat number one picked up a news broadcast, and when it was finished, the petty officer in command pulled free the tape that had recorded it and tucked it in his pocket. There were items of interest on it. The Isis came to a stop in space. The battleship rose and rose. It did not drive toward the Isis. There was a maximum distance beyond which space combat was impractical, beyond which missiles became mere blind projectiles, moving almost at random and destroying each other without regard to planetary loyalties. There was also a minimum distance, below which missiles were again mere projectiles and could not greatly modify the courses on which they were launched. But there was a wide area in between, in which combat was practical. The Mekinese battleship reached a height where it could maneuver on solar system drive without rockets. It might, of course, flick into overdrive and be gone thousands of millions of miles within seconds. But that would be flight. It would not return accurately to the scene of the fight. So overdrive could not be used as a battle tactic. It could be used only for escape. Near the planet, where the two spaceboats floated, the dawn line appeared at the world's edge. The spaceboats swung about, facing backward, and applied power for deceleration. They dropped into the atmosphere and bounced out again, and in again more deeply, and then swung once more to face along their course. They began a long, shallow, screaming descent from the farthest limits of the planet's atmosphere. Out where the sun of Garin was a disk of intolerable brilliance and heat, the battleship bumbled on its way. It would seem that its commander scornfully accepted the Isis's terms of combat and moved contemptuously to the position where his weapons would be most deadly. His ship's launching tubes were at the ready. It should be able to pour out a cloud of missiles. In fact, a sardonic voice came from the battleship. "'Calling pirate,' said the voice. "'Yes,' said Bors. "'If you wish to surrender—' "'We don't,' said Bors. "'I was about to say,' said the sardonic voice, "'that it is now too late.' The radar screen showed tiny specks darting out from that larger speck which was the battleship. They came hurtling toward the Isis. Bors counted them. A ship of the Isis's class mounted eighteen launching tubes. She should be able to fire eighteen missiles at a time. The Mekinese ship had fired nineteen. If the Isis opened fire, by all the previous rules of space combat, she would need to use one missile to counter every one of the battleships. There would still be one left over to destroy the Isis. Unless she fired a second spread of missiles, which was virtually impossible before she would be hit. It was mockery by the skipper of the battleship. 
He was doubtless much amused by the idea of toying with this small, insolent vessel. But Boris did not try to match him missile for missile. He said evenly, "'Fire one, fire two, fire three, fire four. He stopped at four. His four missiles went curving wildly, in the general direction only of the enemy. On the planet Garin two shrieking objects came furiously to the ground. Men leaped swiftly out of them and trotted toward a small town, a settlement, a group of houses hardly larger than a village. One man delayed by each grounded spaceboat, and then ran to overtake the others. Local inhabitants appeared, to stare and to wonder. The two landing parties, ten men in each, did not pause. They swarmed into the village's single street. There were ground cars at the street sides. The men of the landing parties established themselves briskly. One of them seized a staring civilian by the arm. "'To hell with Meekin,' he said conversationally. "'Where's the communicator office?' "'Why, what?' "'To hell with Meekin,' repeated the man from the Isis impatiently. "'Where's the communicator office?' The civilian, trembling suddenly, pointed. Some of the landing party rushed to it. Four went in. There were reports of blast rifles. Smoke and the smell of burnt insulation drifted out. Others of the magically arrived men went methodically down the street, examining each ground car in turn. One of them cupped his hands and bellowed for the information of alarmed citizens. "'Attention, please! We're from the pirate ship Isis. You have nothing to fear from us.' We're survivors of Meekin's invasion of Kandar. You will please cooperate with us, and no harm will come to you. Your ground cars will be disabled, so you can't report us. You will not be punished for this. Repeat, you will not be punished. He repeated the announcement. Others of the swiftly moving landing parties drove the chosen ground cars away from the streets. The remaining cars received a blaster bolt apiece. In seven minutes and thirty seconds from the landing of the small spacecraft, a motley assortment of cars roared out of the village, heading for the capital city of Garin. As the last car cleared the houses, there was a monstrous explosion. One of the space boats flew to bits. Before the cars had vanished, there was a second explosion. Another space boat vanished in flame and debris. The landing party had no way to return to space. The inhabitants of the village had no way to report their coming except in person and by traveling some considerable distance on foot. They were singularly slow in making that report. The men of the spaceboats had said they were pirates. The people of Garin felt no animosity toward pirates. They only hated Mekinese. Out in space, Missiles hurtled away from the small ship Isis. They did not plunge directly at the battleship. They swung crazily in wide arcs. The already launched Mekinese missiles swerved to intercept them. They failed. More missiles erupted from the battleship, aimed to intercept. They also failed. The battleship began to fling out every missile it possessed, in a frantic effort to knock out the Isis's erratic missiles, which neither instruments nor eyes were able to follow accurately enough to establish a pattern of destination.
Half a dozen ground cars roared through the streets of the capital city of Garin. They did not seem to be crowded. One man, or at most two, could be seen in each car, but they drove as a unit, one close behind another, at a furious pace. When they needed a clear way, the first sounded its warning note, and the others joined in as a chorus. Half a dozen sirens blaring together have an authoritative emergency sound. The way was cleared when that imperative clarion demanded it. They swerved under the landing grid. They raced and bounced across the clear surface which was the spaceport. There stood a giant, rotund cargo ship pointing skyward. There were ground trucks still supplying cargo for its nearly filled-up holds. The six ground cars braked, making clouds of dust. And suddenly there was not one or two men in each, but an astonishing number. They knew exactly what they were about. Five of them plunged into the ship. Others drove off the ground trucks. Uniformed men ran from the side of the spaceport toward the ship, yelling. One ground car started up again, rushed to the control building, swerved sharply as a crash into it seemed inevitable, and dumped something out on the ground. It raced back to the other cars about the cargo ship. The hold doors were closing. The object dumped by the control building went off. It was a chemical explosive bomb, but its power was adequate. The wall of the building caved in. Flames leaped crazily out of the collapsed heap. The landing field would be out of operation. The last car skidded to a stop. The two men in it ran for the boarding stair of the cargo boat. There was nobody of their party outside now. The landing stair withdrew after them. Then monstrous, incredible masses of flame and steam burst from the bottom of the rotund spaceship. It lifted, slowly at first, but then more and more swiftly. It climbed to the sky. It became a speck, and then a moat at the crawling end of a trail of opaque white emergency rocket fumes. Then it vanished. Far out in space there was an explosion brighter than the sun, and then a second and a third. There was a cloud of incandescent metal vapor. Presently a missile found its target-seeking microwaves reflected by the ionized metal steam. It plunged into collision with that glowing stuff. It exploded. Two or three more exploded, like the first. Others burned harmlessly. A voice said, "'Cargo ship reporting. Clear of ground. Everything going well. No casualties.' "'Report again when in clear space,' said Bors. He waited. Several long minutes later, a second report came. "'Cargo ship reporting. In clear space.' "'Very good work,' said Bors. "'You know where to go now. Go ahead.' "'Yes, sir,' said the voice from space. Then it asked apologetically, "'You got the battleship, sir?' The voice from space sounded as if the man who spoke were grinning. "'We'll celebrate that, sir. Good to have served with you, sir.' Bors swung the Isis and drove on solar system drive to get well away from Garin. He watched the blip which was the captured ship as it seemed to hesitate a very, very long time. It was aiming, of course, for Glamis, 
that totally useless solar system around a planet where the fleet of Kandar orbited in bitter frustration. Bors got up from his seat to loosen his muscles. He had sat absolutely tense and effectively motionless for a very long time. He ached, but he felt a sour sort of satisfaction. For a ship of the Isis's class to have challenged a battleship to combat, to have deliberately and insultingly waited for it to choose its own battle distance, and then to let it launch its missiles first, it was no ambush. Bors did not feel ashamed of this fight. He'd acted according to the instincts of a fighting man who gives his enemy the chance to use what weapons the enemy has chosen, and then defeats him. His second-in-command said, "'Sir, the cargo boat blip is gone. It should be in overdrive now, sir, heading for Glamis.' "'Then we'll follow it,' said Bors. Suddenly he realized how his second-in-command must feel. The landing party'd seen action for which Bors envied them, and he'd felt ashamed because he'd stayed in the ship in what he considered safety while they risked their lives. But his second-in-command had had no share in the achievement at all. Bors had handled all controls and given all orders, even the routine ones, since before Tralee. "'I think,' said Bors, "'I'll have a cup of coffee. You take over and head for Glamis.' He left the control room to let his subordinate handle things for a time. He'd seated himself in the mess room when the voice of his second-in-command came through the speakers. "'Going into overdrive,' said the voice. "'All steady. Five, four, three, two. Bors prepared to wince. He put down his coffee cup and held himself ready for the sickening sensation. Suddenly there was the rasping, snaring, crackling of a high-voltage spark. There were shouts. There were explosions and the reek of overheated metal and smoldering insulation. Then the compartment doors closed. When Bors had examined the damage, and the emergency purifiers had taken the smoke and smell out of the air, his second-in-command looked suicidally gloomy. "'It's bad business,' said Bors wryly. Very bad business. But I should have mentioned it to you. I didn't think of it. I wouldn't have thought of it if I had been doing the overdrive business myself. The second-in-command said bitterly, But I knew you'd tried the new low-power overdrive. I knew it. I left it switched in, said Bors, because I thought we might use it in the fight with the battleship. But we didn't. I should have checked that it was off, protested his second. It's my fault. Bohr shrugged. Deciding whose fault it was wouldn't repair the damage. There'd been a human error. Bohr's had approached Garin on the low-power overdrive that Logan had computed for him. There was a special switch to cut it in, instead of the standard overdrive. It should have been cut out when the standard overdrive was used but somebody in the engine room had simply thrown the main drive switch when preparations for overdrive travel began. When the ship should have gone into overdrive, it didn't. The two parallel circuits amounted to an effective short circuit. Generators, condensers, 
Even the overdrive field coils in their armored mounts outside the hull, everything blew. So the Isis was left with a solar system drive, and rockets, and nothing else. If the drive used only in solar systems were put on full, and the Isis headed for Glamis, and if the food and water held out, it would arrive at that distant world in eighty-some years. It could reach Tralee in fifty. But there were emergency rations for a few weeks only. It was not conceivable that repairs could be made. This was no occasion calling for remarkable ingenuity to make some sort of jury-rigged drive. This was final. "'I've got to think,' said Bors heavily. He went to his own cabin. Talents Incorporated couldn't improvise or precognize or calculate an answer to this, and all previous plans had to be cancelled. Absolutely. He dismissed at once and for all time the idea that the Isis could be repaired short of months in a well-equipped spaceyard on a friendly planet. She should be blown up, after adequate pains were taken to destroy any novelties in her makeup. Boris found himself thinking sardonically that Logan should be shot, because he had no obligation of loyalty to Kandar, and could as readily satisfy his hunger for recognition in the Mekanee service as in Kandar's. The crew... That was the heart of the situation. The Isis could not be salvaged. She should be destroyed. There was only one world within reach on which human beings could live. That world was Garen. The Isis could sit down on Garen, disembark her crew, and be blown up before Mekanese authorities could interfere. Perhaps, possibly, her crew could try to function on Garen as marooned pirates, as outlaws, as rebels against the puppet planetary government. But they knew too much. Every man aboard knew how the interceptor-proof missiles worked. Logan might be the only man who had ever calculated the tables for their use, but if any member of the Isis's crew were captured and made to talk, he could tell enough for Mekanese mathematicians to start work with. If Logan were captured, he could tell more. He could recompute not only the tables for the missiles, but the data for low-power overdrive which would make any fleet invincible. And there was the Kandarian fleet. If its existence became known, it would mean the destruction of Kandar. Every soul of all its millions would die with every tree and blade of grass, every flower, beast, and singing bird, even the plankton in its seas. Bors had arrived at the grimmest decision of his life when his cabin speaker said curtly, "'Captain Bors, sir, space-yacht Silva calling, asks for you.' "'I'm here,' said Bors. Gwenlin's voice came out of the speaker. "'Are you in trouble, Captain? One of our talents insists that you are.' Bors swallowed. "'I thought you'd gone on as you were supposed to do.' "'Yes.' There is trouble. It amounts to shipwreck. How many of my men can you take off? We've lots of room, said Gwenlin. My father kept most of the talents with him. We're heading your way, Captain. Very good, said Bors. Thank you. 
He was grateful, but help from a woman, from Gwenlin, galled him. He heard her click off, and shivered. Presently the Silva was alongside. The transfer of the Isis's crew began. Bors went over the ship for the last time. The ship's log went aboard the Silva, as did Logan's calculated tables for low-power overdrive. Bors made quite sure that nothing else could be recovered from the Isis. He looked strained and irritable when he finally went into one of the lifeboat blisters on the Isis, left vacant by the sacrifice of two spaceboats in the Garin cutting-out expedition. A boat from the Silva was there to receive him. Technically, said Bors, I should go down with my ship, or fly apart with it. But there's no point in being romantic. I'm the one, said his second-in-command, who will stand court-martial. I doubt it very much, said Bors. They can't court-martial you for partly accomplishing something they're in trouble for failing at. Into the boat with you. He threw a switch and entered the boat. The blister opened, the small spaceboat floated free. Its drive hummed, and it drove far and away from the seemingly unharmed but completely helpless Isis. Bors looked regretfully back at the abandoned light cruiser. Sunlight glinted on its hull. Somehow a slow rotary motion had been imparted to it during the process of abandoning ship. The little fighting ship pointed, as though wistfully at the stars about her, to none of which she would ever drive again. The Silva loomed up. The last spaceboat nestled into its blister and the grapples clanked. The leaves closed. When the blister air pressure showed normal and the green lights flashed and flashed, Bors got out of the boat and went to the Silva's control room. Gwenlin was there, quite casually controlling the operation of the yacht by giving suggestions to its official skipper. She turned and beamed at Bors. "'We'll pull off away,' she observed, "'and make sure your time-bomb works. You wouldn't want her discovered and salvaged.' "'No,' said Bors. He stood by a viewport as the Silva drove away. The Isis ceased to be a shape and became the most minute of motes. Bors looked at his watch. "'Not far enough yet,' he said depressedly. "'Everything will go.' The yacht drove on, fifteen, twenty minutes at steadily increasing solar system speed. "'It's about due,' said Bors. Gwenlin came and stood beside him. They looked together out at the stars. There were myriads upon myriads of them, of all the colors of the spectrum, of all degrees of brightness, in every possible asymmetric distribution. There was a spark in remoteness. Instantly it was vastly more than a spark. It was a globe of deadly blue-white incandescence. It flamed brilliantly as all the Isis's fuel and all the warheads on all its unexpended missiles turned to pure energy in the hundred millionth of a second. It was many times brighter than a sun. Then it was not. And the violence of the explosion was such that there was not even glowing metal vapor where it had been. Every atom of the ship's substance had been volatized and scattered through so many thousands of cubic miles of emptiness 
that it did not show even as a mist. "'A good ship,' said Bors grimly. Then he growled, "'I wonder if they saw that on Garin and what they thought about it.' He straightened himself. "'How did you know we were in trouble?' "'There's a talent,' said Gwenlin, matter-of-factly, "'who can always tell how people feel. She doesn't know what they think or why, but she can tell when they're uneasy and so on. Father uses her to tell him when people lie. When what they say doesn't match how they feel, they're lying.' "'I think,' said Bors, "'that I'll stay away from her. But that won't do any good, will it?' Gwenlin smiled at him. It was a very nice smile. "'She could tell that things had gone wrong with the ship,' she observed, "'because of the way you felt.' but I've forbidden her ever to tell when someone lies to me or anything like that. I don't want to know people's feelings when they want to hide them. Fine, said Bors. I feel better. Standing so close to Gwenlin, he also felt light-headed. She smiled at him again, as if she understood. We'll head for Glamis now, she said. The situation there should have changed a great deal because of what you've done. It would be my kind of luck, said Bors, half-joking, for it to have changed for the worse. It had. <laughs>